Hey, it's Alexis Haynes, and this is my podcast, Recovering from Reality. Anybody really wants to listen to my story. I mean, like, I don't know. I guess I just see it as an incredible thing that um, over the last eight years, those who have been with me watching my um, my experience kind of unfold have stayed along watching this whole time. And I'm so grateful for all of the new people who have come along who are... Um, curious about recovery and and how we live life recovered from all sorts of crazy shit like addiction and trauma and PTSD and anxiety and depression and postpartum depression and sexual abuse you know it's like how do we recover from all this stuff and and so if you're here if you're listening to recovering from reality I'm assuming that that you guys want to hear more about that. And I'm super excited to have this platform and to have this space to be able to talk about these really important topics. Today I really wanted to focus on uh, my story. I think it's important to talk about where I've been so that way there's some perspective on, on where I'm at today. Um, so much of it involves trauma <laughs> involves a lot of trauma um trauma is kind of the um focal point of of my early childhood and into my teen years and what eventually launched me into um recovery and and into getting better so i grew up in southern california i'm a socal native um, I still live here today and I grew up with parents who, uh, worked in the entertainment industry. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. My mom was kind of a free spirited pot smoking hippie chick. They got married and had me and then had my little sister. And by the time I was three, they divorced. My dad had had an affair, but I don't ever really remember like living in a household with my mom and my dad. That in itself, I'm sure was quite traumatic, although I don't remember. Um, I do remember feeling really unstable um, my mom was often very emotionally unstable and my father was not someone that I could rely on because of his, um, alcoholism and addiction issues. At the age of four, I started to be sexually abused by a family member. He was 10 years older than me. This went on for several years. So he was about 14 to 17 and I was four to seven years old. And um, it was a horrendously traumatic experience um, that affected pretty much every aspect of my life. I did shut it down for a long time. I had memories of bits and pieces of things that happened. 
But it wasn't until I got sober where I was kind of flooded with very vivid, very vivid memories that were like full stories start to finish. So that sexual abuse began really early on for me and it affected every aspect of my life. Like I was saying, my schooling and my ability to make friends, um, my relationship with men, um, the trust that I had for them and boys in general, the way that I viewed my body and it really crushed me. And I kept I kept that secret from my from my family until I was about eighteen years old. So I had a lot of trauma and instability at home, plus the sexual abuse. And I can remember from a really early age wanting to escape, whether it was in a video game or TV or food, specifically sugar. Um, I remember going to my friends' houses and eating entire boxes of gushers just to feel that like sugar high and um and and so it started there and then I fast forward a few years middle school years I began experimenting with more drugs the first time I used a substance was around the age of 11 or 12. I remember sneaking warm beers out of a friend's parents' garage, and it was absolutely disgusting, but I loved the feeling of that. And by the time I was in middle school, I was smoking pot and I was drinking I had a boyfriend who was much older than I was, so we would go to high school parties when I was still in middle school. And then around the age of 14, I ended up having surgery, and I tried opiates for the first time, and that was the best feeling I have ever experienced. And I knew that I needed to do that for the rest of my life. That's honestly what I thought. It wasn't until I was 15 that I was able to get my hands on opiates on a regular basis, but I used every party drug imaginable, and then um, by the time I was 16, I was smoking Oxycontin every day. My relationship at that point with my father was completely strained because he had begun being physically abusive towards me. And I had had enough, and so I cut him off. And then, um, you know, it just started spiraling out of control. A lot of people ask and, and don't know the story with Tess, and uh, that's an interesting story, actually. And she sort of popped back into my life around that same time, around 14. Though she'd been been in it since I was three when my dad and mom separated my mom put me in dance class I think she thought maybe it would I don't know help me whatever <laughs> and so she put me in dance class and she is sitting next to this beautiful blonde woman and the woman looks over at her and says you know sometimes I just want to slap a nipple on a bottle of vodka and go to bed and my mom looked over at her and said Hi, I'm Andrea. Nice to meet you. We should hang out. And I laugh at that story because um, that's really kind of 
what I remember of Tessa's mom was this very eclectic, wild and loud and beautiful woman who struggled really greatly with substance abuse issues. And so Tess kind of um, became like a sister to me because my mom and her mom spent days and days and days together in our garage making jewelry and smoking pot and beating pillows while we kind of ran, ran amok inside um, torturing and tormenting little Gabby, poor Gabby. <laughs> so, you know, so I met Tess way back then. And then eventually my mom split ways with Tracy, her mom, because it was just so chaotic with the substance abuse going on. And, um, Tess remained in my life. My mom became really good friends with her father and, you know, we we spent many, many summers together and sleepovers and all of that. It wasn't until um, I was about 15 that Tess finally moved into our house. And her and I both were already using substances at this point. And we were kind of like fire and gasoline and so we were 16 and 17 years old. We didn't we weren't in school anymore and we were determined to be models. <laughs> and so um we came up with this whole kind of interesting story that we were twins, that we were fraternal twins and that we were 20 years old that way no one could ask us for our IDs out in Hollywood. And we started working music videos and partying with rock stars and having this really crazy and wild life. And it was a lot of fun. But inside, we were both struggling because at that point, at 16 and 17 years old, we were already addicted to smoking Oxycontin every single day. And we were like garbage cans for drugs. And I mean, when we were going to like Kid Rock's house and spending weekends there with tons of different people and partying and whatever, I mean, I didn't see them using the type of drugs we were using. I mean, they were partying for sure, but it was nothing like the way Tess and I partied. I guess I just thought, you know, we're young party girls. Who cares? We're young. We're wild. We're free. It doesn't matter. You know, in recovery, they talk a lot about like what it, it was fun. And then it was fun with problems. And then it was just problems. So this was the part where it was all just really fun. It was also around the time, well, it was more like 17, that I met Nick Prugo, this amazing, fun gay boy who... I love to do drugs with and party with. And um, that's kind of what led to the whole bling ring. And I didn't know at the time that he had already been robbing celebrities. But we, again, I was just, I don't want to blame, this is not blaming anybody. I take full responsibility for my behavior and actions back then. But I was just like a naive, very sheltered like kid who grew up in suburbia who is just letting it all go like being completely wild 
um, because I just had felt like such a tortured soul my whole life. And now it's like I had freedom. My parents couldn't tell me what to do. For God's sakes, my mom started smoking pot with us when we were like 14 years old. There was no boundaries in our household, but I just really felt free. Like she was always on top of me, like you have to finish school and you have to do chores and you have to do this. And now I'm like, well, now I'm making a name of myself and I'm making my own money. So you can't tell me what the fuck to do. And so it was just this time that was not at all innocent and absolutely crazy and so much fun. And I remember being on the set of the Marilyn Manson music videos, snorting tons of cocaine and partying and rolling into IHOP at around 5 a.m. with Tess and sitting down on a table and going, whoa, we've made it. This is it. This is amazing. I look back at that now at that 17-year-old naive girl and I go, oh, there's so much more to live for. You just don't know it. So... Here we are, we're doing music videos and we're having fun and building relationships out in Hollywood and living up this dream and this big crazy life and and then we get approached on a movie set and this guy goes, you girls are hilarious, would you ever want to shoot a sizzle reel for a reality TV show? And so we presented it to my mom and she said, okay we'll we'll do it and initially the show was going to be called homeschooled with the arlingtons which is hilarious because it ended up being pretty wild the show was initially going to be about how we were kind of making our way out in la and we were work we used the secret to like manifest the abundance that we were going to have and yada, yada, yada. It was like, you know, like the hippie version of the Kardashians, right? Which was just hilarious. So we filmed this sizzle reel and it's like a one in a million shot that you would ever actually get a reality TV show. But I guess we were that one in a million and it was totally crazy So we end up um, meeting Chelsea Handler, who was the executive producer on the show, and we start filming um, Pretty Wild. I had actually been out the entire night before, partying, doing heroin. We rolled in around 5 a.m. I took a Xanax, crawl into bed. I know that I have to start filming in just a few hours. And the cops showed up at my doorstep. So for the show, we actually re-recorded that to make it look like that was the police banging on my front door um, first thing in the morning. So the cops show up to my house that morning to arrest me for um, the burglary of Orlando Bloom's house and with regards to the bling ring. So... Um, I, I was just, I didn't even realize that that's what they were there for because I actually called the police. I called the police several times. Um, after I stopped talking to Nick after that night, I called the police. I I didn't realize how bad or how crazy this whole thing was. 
and I hadn't known Nick for very long, so I called the cops. And so I thought that they were just there to talk to me because I had called and left my name and information. And then all of a sudden, in this kind of like, if anyone's done Xanax, you know, you're like, you feel really drunk. Um, all of a sudden, I was being arrested. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> I just was like so oblivious. Um, and just so oblivious to the mess already that I had created in my life and, you know, at such a young age. And I didn't realize how dangerous my partying really was. Little did I know it would get far, far worse. So that was kind of like the, you know, the fun was over. Now we're getting into the fun with problems. Filming a reality show while you're addicted to opiates and fighting a burglary charge is um, like a special kind of hell. If you guys have ever dealt with addiction, you know, like you're so emotionally unregulated. You're living with so much trauma. You're always in fight or flight. Your main priority is to get your drugs so that way you can shut it all the fuck off. But you're at the same time doing it on national television in front of like several million people every Sunday night. I mean, it's just like horrendous, you know, but I was still having fun in the sense that I think, I think that it gave me an ego boost that really, um, like I fed off of that for as long as I could until the guilt and the shame really started to set in and I realized what a mess I made of my life. Then it ended and I got sentenced to six months in um, the Linwood Correctional Facility and three years of formal probation with a six, three to six year suspended sentence over my head. So what that meant is I'll do the six months and if you get up and, and, and get out and mess up at all, it will be mandatory that you go to prison for three to six years. That's how that works. If you've ever dealt with addiction, then you know that you're constantly in fight or flight mode. You're suppressing years and years of trauma and pain. You have high, high and low lows emotionally. And I was doing all of that while fighting a court case on national television. And it was pure hell. I stopped filming my show pretty wild and my addiction got worse and worse. Um, by that point, I was using heroin every single day, all day long. And in June of 2010, I ended up surrendering to the Linwood Correctional Facility and, you know, checking in for my six-month stay. And um, while I was in there, it was really clear to me that, like, heroin was absolutely an issue, that I, I should not do heroin anymore, and that I was destroying my life. But I didn't really fully comprehend that the heroin was just a Band-Aid. The heroin was a Band-Aid for all of the suffering, and so what I really needed to do was get to the bottom of, of the issue, which is why all the suffering. And it was at that point, 
because, you know, and I think this is true for most addicts, like you, you have some sort of trauma, but then you re-traumatize yourself over and over and over and over again for years. And so you have all of your past trauma and the things that were done to you and then all of the things and all of the wreckage and all of the pain that you've created yourself. And dealing with that is a daunting task and one that I didn't even know how to, um, where to even start. So I got out with the intention of staying sober. That lasted for about two hours. I got blackout drunk at a friend's house. And then my intention was just to stay off heroin. But my relationship with Tess was so codependent. And she called me and said, you know, I need a place to go. Can I come to the apartment? I said, yes. She had heroin on her, and the rest was history. It only took a few months for me to go back into jail. Let's see, I got out the end of that summer, and by December 1st, 2010, I was rearrested for not showing up to probation. And that day ended up being the very best day of my life. I was so broken, so tired of my own shit, so tired of constantly running and all of the pain that I had suppressed for so many years. I mean, don't get me wrong, I still fought the whole process tooth and nail for probably the first four to six months of my sobriety, maybe closer to four. But I knew that I was done. I knew that I was done and I knew that if I didn't change now, that I was going to die a junkie. I just knew it. The amount of overdoses and close to overdoses and car accidents and fistfights and all of that stuff had just become so crazy. It was just, it was going to be over one way or another. And so... Um, by the grace of God, this amazing attorney who who came into my life asked me a very simple question. He said, are you ready to take responsibility for your life? I had no idea what he meant, and I didn't know the steps that would follow that. But he said, um, you know, you're going to go in front of the judge and just admit it. Because I had kept saying, it's not my heroin. They caught me with heroin <laughs> when they came and arrested me. I was like, that's not my dope. That's my sister's dope. What are you talking about? Um, so, you know, I wasn't ready to take responsibility. I was in the middle of like the worst detox. If you guys have ever detoxed cold turkey from heroin, it's the worst thing ever. Literally like shitting my pants and vomiting at the same time in my little tiny ice cold jail cell with a mattress you know, as thin as a blanket and just so violently ill. And so they took me to the court building that morning. I think it was December 8th. So it had been seven days of detox and I still felt like hell. And the camera crews were in there and I was like, shit, am I really going to do this? Like, am I really going to own up to this? Thank God I did, because that was the best thing that I ever did for myself. The DA 
was adamant that I go to jail um, or prison rather for those three to six years. And I just begged for the judge's mercy. I said, please send me to treatment. Please, please send me to treatment. I need to go. I, I am just so sick. And if you put me in there, I'm just going to end up being a worse person than I am now. And, you know, he let me. And I'm so grateful. So, so grateful. I mentioned earlier that I fought the process in the beginning and boy did I ever I wasn't really ready to like face my own stuff and and I wasn't really ready to like take a look at my life so I just was full of ego and just thought I was so cool and it was totally obnoxious and um, I was the type that would like fight all the time with um the therapists in the group rooms and was just really combative and obnoxious and and thought that I knew better than everyone else uh, this you know little 19 year old girl who has spent her life running away from all of her issues somehow knew better than everyone else there was a number of pivotal moments that happened for me in early recovery that I really think changed my willingness one of the most um (laughs) and it sounds so silly to say this now but I was in a big book study in my treatment center and this guy Robert he's passed on now I was fighting him on something, arguing about how I was just opiate dependent and I'm not a real alcoholic and blah, blah, blah. And I had all of this reasoning and he looks at me and he goes, you know what, Alexis, normal people don't even try heroin. And for some reason, that sentence made me go, whoa, you're right. Normal people would never even try heroin. And it kind of made something click that and like a number of emotional bottoms that took place for me. I mean, at that point it was just me. I used this as like a protection mechanism, all of the fighting and I'm too good for this and blah, 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 because I didn't want to deal with my sexual abuse. I didn't want to deal with the trauma from my parents. I didn't want to deal with my rape that happened when I was 16 or maybe 17 out in LA. I didn't want to deal with all of those um, traumatic things. And so I was putting up this front and slowly those walls started to come down as I began building a community. And I really can't stress that enough. If you are new to getting sober You don't need much more than good, sober people around you. That's really what got me through because I was not ready to dive into my trauma at that point, at 30 days sober, at 60 days sober. I mean, I was maybe willing to admit that I have a problem. I was maybe willing to admit that I don't have all the answers, but I wasn't ready for the in-depth trauma work that I've done here later on in life. I just wasn't. What I held on to was the community, was amazing sober men and women who had walked this and gave me hope, one of which was Evan, who is now my husband of seven years.
Sobriety has definitely not been the easiest journey for me. And I remember my sponsor saying, whoever told you sobriety was the easy path was a fucking liar. And it is so true. I feel like I can walk through anything in sobriety. I've, I've dealt with a lot. I've dealt with a lot of losses of friends and of people in the community. I've dealt with postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. Um, when Dakota was eight days old, my second child, I almost died. I had three blood clots in my right lung. And I've had so many crazy and wild experiences with regards to my health and many close calls. And I still wouldn't trade it. And I'm so grateful for all of the work that I've done that has made me resilient enough to walk through these really crazy and 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 quite traumatic experiences while being able to stay mindful and present and alert and and to have the confidence in myself that you know that I've worked through those past traumas that I'm not there anymore and that I don't have to live like that anymore so you know here I am today I am a mother of two beautiful daughters Harper, who's five and a half, almost six, and Dakota, who's two and a half. My husband and I own a drug treatment center. We focus our lives on helping other people get sober, and it is the most rewarding work ever. I can't even imagine doing anything different, and I'm so grateful that while I was in treatment, the owner of the treatment center, Greg Hanley, you know, he really encouraged me to go to school and I went to school to become a drug and alcohol counselor. And that was one of the best decisions I've ever made for myself. So here we are. I've waited eight years for this moment. I knew that had I started a podcast or really even dove into the work of advocating for addicts and for marginalized people and people who've been abused that if I had done this at two or three or even four years sober, nobody would have taken me seriously. No one would have taken me seriously. So I'm here today to share this story with you and to share my perspective. I hear a lot of people ask me amazing questions, one of which is, are you worried about your children becoming drug addicts or alcoholics. As a parent, I think that we worry about a lot, especially when you're a mom that's dealt with postpartum depression and anxiety, everything. You worry about everything, that they're going to fall down the stairs, that they're going to climb through the banister and hit their head, that they're going to, you know, the stroller is going to somehow end up in the pool. I don't know. I've heard the works from other moms and I've been through it too. Um, but I really love to talk a lot about the study, the ACE studies, the Adverse Childhood Experience studies. I highly suggest that if you haven't taken this test that was created by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente, that you do so. The ACE studies are these amazing studies 
that basically um, they, there's also an amazing TED Talk on this too. So if you TED Talk, if you watch TED Talks, I highly suggest you watch the one on ACE studies. ACE studies, and I, I took the test. What the test does is it measures 10 traumatic events, the most traumatic events that one can go through that have the biggest impact on your life. And it not only measured your risk of becoming a drug addict or having depression or your potential for suicide, but it also measured how much stress you can have in your life and your risk of cancer and lung disease and all of those types of things. So it's a really cool study. And so basically it says, you know, if you score one or more, you're X more likely to have X, Y, or Z. Well, I ended up scoring nine out of 10 and I am lucky to be alive. And I remind myself of that daily because for me, my life is big and beautiful and full, but it's challenging, you guys. Living a life in sobriety as a mother with the past that I've had is not an easy thing to do. Every day it takes work. Every day it takes work. They also did an amazing follow-up study on resilience. And they talk about the um, resilience factor. So the more resilient you are, the better you're off you are to, um, you know, combat those those negative reactions to the trauma that you can face in early childhood. Anyways, really, really amazing, um, amazing stuff that I think it's important for all of us to look at. Um, you know, today in my life, I still have a hard time balancing self-care, motherhood, being a wife, a friend, a sister, a daughter, but I am so grateful, so, so grateful to be where I am today. I can't imagine a life any better than this. Waking up sober, and I know this sounds corny, and I used to hear this at a few days sober and be like, yeah, right, that is total bullshit. But I wouldn't give up my worst day in sobriety for my best day getting loaded. I really wouldn't. I really wouldn't. The gift in being present and being mindful and being able to process stress and trauma and the gift in being able to slow down and be there for my kids, parent them differently have a different relationship with my husband, one where we don't fight and scream at each other all the time, and my kids don't have to endure the same things that that we did growing up. I mean, such, such a gift, such a gift, and a gift that I believe like everybody deserves, which is why I'm doing this, which is why I'm doing this. I'm doing this podcast because... I want for people to be able to come on here and share their stories and share their experiences so that way hopefully 
All of you amazing listeners will take a little something away each time that helps you, that helps you to heal yourself or helps you to be a better parent or helps you to grow and evolve in some way. So I'm going to leave you guys with that. Where do we go from here? We're going to talk about sobriety. We're going to talk about feminism. We're going to talk about sex and therapy spirituality, birth, parenting. We're going to cover all of the things, you guys. And we're going to do the heavy lifting together with some incredible guests. I'm so looking forward to that. <laughs>